my sister, then you and I might both rest. The bell in the tower rings the five o'clock hour. I would love to stay with you past the twilight time. I remember that you do not like to be left alone in the dark, but I must go dress for yet another of King Louis's balls, where we shall all convene in the very rooms where you once lived. Adieu, my love. Remember how we hated to speak the French language? One must speak it all the time now. The bells have stopped chiming, and Isabella imagines that her attendants grow impatient with the visit. Still, she finds that she does not wish to leave. She stands, caressing Beatrice's peaceful visage one more time, touching her stony locks and nestling a warm cheek against her sister's cold, chiseled one. Beatrice, Beatrice, it's not that I didn't love you. You were like the swans in your pond, born awkward and ugly, maturing into beauty, bringing magic into the world and singing at the hour of your death. You mythical creature, who on earth or above could not have loved you. It's just that for so long I imagined that you had stolen my destiny, when all the while, unbeknownst to us, you were preserving it for me. In the year 1489, in the city of Ferrara. She grew up in a land of fairy tales and miracles. That is what Isabella is explaining to Francesco as they ride through Ferrara's streets. It is Christmas time, and though there is no snow on the dry stone road, the horses shoot clouds of steam into the frigid air through their nostrils. This is the first time she has been allowed to escort her fiancé through the city on one of his visits. Francesco Gonzaga, future Marquis of Mantua, has come to Ferrara to romance his soon-to-be bride and to enjoy the city's many Christmas pageants ordered by Isabella's father, Duke Ercole d'Este, a great patron of the theatre. Isabella believes that the more she tells Francesco of Ferrara's secrets and wonders, and the more she shows him of her father's spectacular building projects and improvements, the more he will realise her value. In this very church, Isabella says, pointing to St. Mary's of the Ford, almost two hundred years ago on Easter Sunday, the priest broke the Eucharist in two, and flesh and blood came spraying forth, covering the walls of the church and splattering the entire flock. The parishioners watched in awe, Isabella says, eyes wide with drama. The Bishop of Ferrara and the Archbishop of Ravenna came to see it. They instantly recognized it as the body and blood of Christ and declared it a true miracle of the Eucharist. Francesco solemnly makes the sign of the cross as they ride past the church, but his eyebrows arch skeptically, making him look entirely out of step with the act. Beatrice trots ahead of the pair of lovers, her long braid swinging in saucy rhythm with the horse's mane, as uninterested as her steed in their conversation. Isn't that right, Beatrice? Isabella asks her sister for confirmation of her story, hoping that the odd girl does not say anything to contradict her. Beatrice is a puzzle to Isabella, a fact that the older sister blames on the girl's unsupervised upbringing in wild Naples. The girl is a feral, unformed thing, alternately shy, naive, aloof and bold, the latter especially apparent when riding or hunting. How such a small fourteen-year-old girl, who is not particularly courageous outside of these activities, excels at all manly sport, is a mystery to Isabella. But the fact of Beatrice's prowess remains, no matter how enigmatic. 
I wouldn't know. I wasn't there, Beatrice finally answers without turning around, but they can hear her laugh at her own joke. The animal's swaying ass taunts Isabella, who knows that her sister is dying to break away from them to test the horse's speed. Francesco has brought Drago, the pure white Spanish charger, from his family's stud farm on the island of Tejeto, as a gift for the girl's father. But Beatrice immediately took over the animal, talking to him in whispers that should be reserved for a lover, and hopping upon him and riding away, as if the painstakingly bred horse was meant to carry a little girl in a pink riding dress and not a fearsome knight in armour. I'll tell you a miracle that happened right here in Ferrara that is even better, Francesco says, sidling his horse right up to Isabella's so that their legs touch. She knows she should pull away, that her mother would rail against this sort of indiscriminate physical contact, but instead she rides with slow care so that they might continue to brush against one another. What miracle is that? she asks, suppressing a smile. That your father agreed that you should be my wife, he answers. You have no idea just how miraculous, she thinks. If the timing had been slightly different, he would be marrying the jaunty girl riding ahead of them, but this he does not know. When the marriage agreements were made nine years ago, Isabella was only six and Beatrice five. Who could have cared at that time which sister married what man, as long as both marriages were politically expedient for the city-state of Ferrara? Duchess Leonora had long ago drummed into her daughter's heads that marriage between noble houses was no whimsical arrangement based on ephemeral qualities of preference or attraction. The peace of Italy depended on these unions, especially at this juncture. The Venetians had become doubly aggressive since the Turks pushed them out of Constantinople. They began to push farther and farther inland into Italy because they needed land for their farms and their citizens. The Venetians wanted complete control over the trade routes and the rivers as well as the land. Ferrara was venerable and strong, but small. For her to remain independent, she must have strong alliances with the city-states of Mantua and Milan. You girls are ambassadors of Ferrara. Its welfare depends upon the success of your marriages. Therefore, you must do nothing, nothing, to endanger these alliances. Your behavior must be impeccable. You are as much the protectors of Ferrara's welfare as our army or our treasury. You are, in fact, its greatest treasures. And when you enter your husband's houses, I expect you to act like it. Do not think that you can behave like the women in fairy tales and poetry. The Duke and I will not tolerate it. Looking at Francesco now, Isabella thinks that she must be the most fortunate of women. Her fiancé is not handsome, but has a rugged quality that gives an ugly man appeal. Already three and twenty, he will never be tall, and his eyes bulge, a condition that she knows will worsen over time because she has seen old men with this affliction and they look like reptiles. Yet he is as solidly built as any man alive, and his courtly manners contrast so thrillingly with the wicked look in his protruding brown eyes. Besides being from one of the oldest noble families in Italy, he already is considered a brilliant student of warfare, destined for an illustrious career in the military arts. Isabella feels that Francesco is the perfect man to help her realize her destiny, which is to have a powerful husband and reign with him over a great and enlightened realm. Beatrice, riding three lengths in front of them, begins to pick up speed. 
she turns her head to the side, giving the lovers a sprightly profile before dashing off with the horse. We had better follow her, Francesco says, a look of grave concern coming over his face. That will not be easy, Isabella replies. Isabella does not like to see any interest in her sister from her betrothed, though she cannot imagine why. With her exceptional qualities, she should not worry one bit, but worry she does. Francesco is from a family famous for breeding horses. Nothing arouses the passions of the Gonzagas of Mantua like a great horse, or a rider who can handle one. Beatrice looks back one more time before guiding Drago through one of the city's grand arched portals to a road where she can ride faster. Francesco takes up the challenge and speeds after her on his dark stallion. Isabella follows, but at a slower pace. It would be extremely unladylike for her to compete with her boyish sister in this game for Francesco's attention. If one is to look upon the two sisters objectively, as Isabella prays Francesco does, one has to observe Isabella's advantages. Isabella has spent all her life at her distinguished mother's knee, while Beatrice, from the ages of two to ten, was left behind at the court of Naples all the way on the other side of Italy as a peace offering to their grandfather, King Ferrante whom everyone feared and hated, but who had taken an instant liking to Beatrice. Isabella reads Latin impeccably and can recite Virgil's eclogues to the satisfaction of her tutors and her father's eminent guests. Beatrice, on the other hand, has spent the four years since her return to Ferrara being pushed to catch up with her sister in their studies. Isabella plays musical instruments and sings like an angel. Beatrice loves music, but must be sung too. Isabella has studied rhetoric and mathematics and can take either side in an argument over at least one platonic dialogue. Beatrice enjoys...